It is a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, many of you know me. I'm Tim Yankee, director of camp, as the video said earlier. And this will be my 20th summer at House Mill. And often I'm visiting churches on Sunday around the tri-state. There's about 36 churches that send uh, campers and support us as a mission. Uh, I get to be at my home church here a little more often between May and July. When my busy season starts, I slow down those visits on Sunday a little more. And it offered several months ago to share uh, leading into camp here at Gateway um, to help fill one of the voids with our campus minister search, our search still going on here at Taze Valley. And I'm blessed to be here today. I always love when I go to other churches and tell some people this is my 20th summer and people say, you don't look old enough to be at camp 20 years. I was like, I take that as a compliment. But I'm also thankful that God has blessed me to be in ministry this long and still have the passion that I have. And I want to share starting my story. Before I do, how many of you love spring? I love spring, but how many of you hate allergies? You realize they come together. There's benefits and cons to even the joys in life of spring and summer coming. And I usually take so much allergy medicine this time of the year, mowing grass at camp and being out in the woods in April is brutal to your sinuses. And so I take allergy medicine, and if I have to stop and drink water, it's because it dries your throat out the more you speak, especially into second service. But you can't drink so much water because ministers, unlike sports, don't get a bathroom break halfway through the sermon and make you guys wait while I run to the bathroom. So I have to balance that. How dry is my throat and how much water can I drink? But I want to share telling my testimony. 20 years ago, I graduated from Kentucky Christian University, and I got a degree in Bible and youth ministry. Uh, two, I double majored and also double minored. I also got a minor in business administration and camp administration while I was there. And in that time, I took 18 to 21 hours a semester. And if you've been through college at any level, that is a lot to do at one time. While also I played soccer full time and had a 10 hour work study job. So I had very little time for social life, for hobbies, for anything but school, soccer, and work. And as a parent, maybe right now, that's the way your life feels right now. Work and kids and sports and we are busy, busy. But after all that education 20 years ago, I had kind of sworn off doing education for a while, reading books for a while. I'm ready to put education back and to start working on my career, my ministry, and put that into practice but the last couple of years, I continue to be asked questions as a leader. I was Wednesday nights teach middle school boys uh, the last uh, 10 years at St. Albans and almost 10 years here, almost 20 years involved with this church. And teenagers ask really good questions. How many of you have been asked a question from your teenager or as a parent or grandparent and you don't know the right answer? Kids ask good questions, and many times I was starting to struggle as a small group leader on Wednesday with all of our students, but also as a parent of three teenagers, now aged 13 to 18. Sometimes they can ask questions that catch us off guard and we're not ready or know how to answer. And so this led me to start asking, do I need to sharpen my strategy? Do I need to get some fresh perspective so that I can understand and have more wisdom on these subjects? If you've ever listened to an audiobook or watched something online, a video, most of you know that you can speed that up from one point something to fast. When you have a lot to read in a week, most of my audiobooks that I would follow along in my textbooks, I would listen at 1.6 speed. And I got to the point that I could comprehend and work really well, but get through something in a short amount of time. But I also think it's made me start talking a lot faster when you're always listening to books like that. And so I'm going to try today to cram two and a half years of knowledge in my head that I have read into a 30-minute sermon. And if you're friends with me on social media, I shared a picture yesterday of the amount of books that I've read in the last year, and it was only about four inches shorter than me stacked up beside. 
I'm going to try to share some of the highlights of the things that I've learned over the last two and a half years at Lincoln Christian University. I decided to go back and to re-educate myself to get that fresh perspective, and yesterday officially graduated with that degree in apologetics and philosophy and theology from LCU. We've talked at Gateway for the last couple of years about, thank you, that was a perfect time for me to take a drink of water and I missed it. But apologetics is a word that a lot of our churches I visit don't understand. It gets misinterpreted many times from our English word apology, but it's a Latin combination with Greek, which means a formal defense of one's opinions or positions, specifically for a Christian defending their faith and beliefs in Christianity. It has nothing to do with apologizing for what we believe or for our faith. And the standard verse the most apologists or Christians point to is 1 Peter 3.15, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, but do this with gentleness and with respect. And if someone asks you why you place your faith in Jesus, we should be able as Christians to answer that foundational question. And if someone asks you that, and even thinking in your mind, if you don't have an answer for that hope that you have and you place your faith in Jesus, spend time this week in putting into words. Take time to write it down and practice why you place your hope in Jesus. So when someone asks you, you're ready to answer that simple question. So Jesus, we threw out the gospel many times, would teach truth by asking questions. Rarely did Jesus, with his first interaction with someone, make a statement or say it's time to change and transform. He started by building a relationship, and many times that starts with asking questions. I think often our methods of styles of preaching and teaching and communicating truth with others many times becomes more of a spectator's event like our sports where we sit back and watch as an audience. But Christ calls us to be more interactive and intentional to leave an impression with others in our community. Today, I want to ask specifically four questions I believe that Christians need to be able to answer, not just within the church, but within interacting with our culture and interacting with unbelievers. And the first is simply, what is a worldview? What is a worldview? And a lot of the books abbreviate that I've read over the last two and a half years, worldview is WV. And in West Virginia, we would abbreviate that when you're writing your address or putting it on a postcard as our state's abbreviation. But when you're reading in apologetics, WV also stands for worldview. And worldviews are foundational assumptions, beliefs and values in life that make sense of the world and reality around us. As a Christian, it's the colored glasses that we view the world with. The same way if you put on a pair of yellow glasses to go outside and mow, everything looks brighter and different. And as a Christian, we view reality and truth through that worldview lens of Christianity. But our worldviews also describe how people not just view the world, but rather what's going to prompt change or transformation in people. Better understanding how someone's philosophy or their worldview is going to allow them and allow us to have strategies to reach unbelievers in a world that's becoming more and more post-Christian and post-modern that doesn't always believe the same way that we do. James Sire, one of the books that I read in my undergrad at Kentucky Christian University, the, the Universe Next Door, said that for any of us to be able to detect the worldviews of others, we must be aware of our own and why we think it is true. We must know why we have our hope in Jesus, like 1 Peter 3.15 says, then we can detect the differences in others. And some of the statistics from the last 30 years should prompt all churches to evaluate where we're failing on making this firmer foundation of our faith. And I'm proud of Gateway and the commitment the last couple years with this uh, apologetics, but also this year rebranding it as foundations, building a firmer foundation in our faith and especially in our students so that when they leave for college and go off, we don't lose them. So many of the statistics the last decade has shown that about 70%, 7 out of 10, leave their faith for a while when they go to college to when they 
have their own home. Usually between ages 18 and 29, between 60 and mostly 70% is usually in that statistic. Whether it's the Barna Group, Pew Research Council, or a lot of books we read, that's the similar statistic. And so what's changed? What changes from that foundation that they grow up in church and they feel like it's true to when they go off? And we're going to examine that a little bit today together. But I want to start explaining this change. What changed? Because for thousands of years, the prevailing mindset was that the universe was God's orderly creation. God, humanity, and nature were deeply intertwined. And according to author Charles Taylor, it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. Everyone believed in God, especially up to about 500 years ago. Everybody believed in God. There wasn't these other worldviews and ways to live your life. And mankind's purpose and happiness was rooted in submission to God. So what transpired that eroded that predominantly worldview that was founded on God and it endured for so long? Well, some of the big things that happened, especially in Europe, before Christianity is brought to America, is centuries of war and bubonic plague, corruption within the church, slowly led people to have this new fresh take or secular ideas that said, we want to live our life without this burden of the church, without this burden of war, without this burden of life that we've seen. And this secular shift in thinking was referred to as moderna or modernity, and human freedom slowly began replacing God as the highest human value. And where the church and Christianity failed to provide peace, secularism promised to be a more livable lifestyle. And as modernity sought to remove religious superstition from the foundations of society, Charles Taylor describes what he calls a nova effect or an explosion of new ideas. And it gives you this, imagine in the universe and out in space, this material, whether it's a star or a mass or a planet, he describes this nova explosion where everyone used to believe in the same thing. And God as the order of creation and everything we see in reality in the universe to now this new ripple effect of a nova that stretches out. And the metaphor that he gives in this imagination depicts this unstoppable tidal wave of consequences when God is not at the center of our worldview. And he emphasizes many cross-pressures in secularism that collectively pushed God out of the framework of society. And before, where God was impossible not to believe in, many new people believed God was not possible. The far opposite end of the spectrum to where God is the only possibility to now God is not even a possibility my mind can grasp. One of the best books that I read that put this into perspective in my time at Lincoln was Mary Poplin, not Mary Poppins, many of you may hear when you hear that name, but Mary Poplin, and she writes a book called Is Reality Secular? And she asks us, when we look at the world, when we look at truth, and we see how the world is, is it really secular, or is secularism this new idea that tries to push God out, even though God is the realest thing that we can imagine and that we can see? But we need to also understand and educate ourselves with other frameworks and other worldviews available. And she does a really good job of listing four categories of worldviews that kind of groups people and their beliefs into these categories. We've covered some of these before when Rush Jordan was here from the Beckley campus several months ago. But I want to do a quick flyover to just give a reminder of some of these worldviews and how they impact how we interact with unbelievers. The first one is material naturalism, whether it's Darwinian evolution, atheism, or scientism, which promotes that only science provides truth. When someone's in this category, they believe the universe and the world have no divine being, no God, only matter, chance, and random luck. And to a naturalist, nothing in nature is the only thing that exists, and therefore supernatural results are impossible. And their conclusion is that miracles, religion, and God have been replaced with irrefutable science. 
The second one is secular humanism, promotes human values and virtues without any specific allusion to religious doctrines. Human fulfillment, scientific inquiry, and human reasoning can be explained without God and also without religion. And you're seeing this especially in today's cities and secular universities. My undergrad, I went to KCU with a guy who graduated and was a preacher for 10 years, also worked in youth ministry, very dedicated Christian his entire life. And sometime in his 30s, decided after a divorce, after some hard doubt in his life, after some tough trials, decided I'm no longer going to be a Christian. I'm sick of living where I feel like I'm living paycheck to paycheck. The church is underpaying me. I'm going to go make more money and live the way I want to live instead of the way I felt confined in Christianity. And now when I see his post, it breaks my heart to see someone that used to be a Christian making money traveling universities preaching that you can be good without any allegiance to God. But as Christians, we know the source of that goodness, the foundation of what we believe is the foundation of how we can be good, that we point to the goodness of our God and our Creator. And when you try to promote human values without God, you can see the conflict in ideas and doesn't mesh with what reality really has to offer. The third that she shares in this book is pantheism. It's time for the drink. Uh, God is in all. God is all. And it's associated with the belief in many gods. In the Old Testament, we read from the Greeks and Romans and Egyptians, we can see this belief in many gods, not just one true God. But today, we still see this in New Age beliefs, in Mormonism, in Buddhism, in Hinduism. And even movies like Avatar and Star Wars, while they can be fun to watch, you have to understand the undertones that talks about this spiritual force that removes the higher, higher spiritual being or removes God from being personal. And I many times identifies God with nature. And pantheists conclude that God must be impartial to good and evil because God is just there. He's not partial to one or the other and it just happens the way it happens. And again, though, those movies can be fun and those ideas can have some fun to let our imagination uh, imagine through a movie for a moment. There's some dangerous undertones if you live your life in a worldview believing in those pantheism ideas. The fourth category that she shares is the, uh, the common belief in one God, the God of Abraham, the creator of the universe that we read about from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. But even in this group, all God is not the same God. The Christian God is not the same God as the God the Jews believe in, that Jesus was not the Messiah. The Muslims believe in that Allah is the Father. So even someone believing in one God that we meet, we may think, this sounds familiar, this is my people. But someone who believes in one God, you've got to ask the right questions to see if they believe in the God that we believe in. And there's stark differences between those different religions. So when you understand how people believe and how their worldview is formed, it allows you to know the right questions to ask. Quickly, I want to share a few verses from Colossians 2.8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And very similar in Corinthians 10.5, says, We destroy bad arguments and every lofty option raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what Christians are called to do when we see someone with a philosophy that doesn't mesh, mesh with reality, that doesn't mesh with the truth of Christianity and the truth of the Bible as we see it. And I want to show you this slide that shares those common ideas that what a worldview is influenced by. 
Years ago, again, when most people believed in God and their worldview was the same and that God was the only thing possible, now many other things are allowing people to believe that God is impossible because of the clutter in their lives. We know we're all busy, but I want to imagine again 500 years ago when everybody grew up on a prairie and in a farm and didn't have Wi-Fi and internet and city life and all the things that clutter our lives today, you can see how there was less things to pull someone away from a godly mindset. And our mind and our will and our attitude and our actions and our speech and our inner integrity were more rooted in God. And once you understand these categories of worldview that Mary Poplin shares and also what, takes it, what it takes for people to be converted or to transformed to even be possible, you understand that it's a combination between our behavior and our beliefs. And on a deeper worldview level, it's the mindsets that we have that shapes our ideas, our feelings, and our values. And so as culture has changed so much, especially in the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, and I think in the last 20 years with technology and the amount of things where people can find uh, information at the tip of their fingertips on a device and a tablet, we have a lot of competing things for our heart and for our mind. And collectively, how these things shape our lives allows us to understand how culture is competing with the gospel message and with the truth. The next thing I want to share after what is a worldview is our first. The next question we can be asking is how can Christians be in the world but not of the world? I want to read from John 17 starting in verse 11 through verse 17. This is when Jesus is praying to God and getting ready to prepare for his crucifixion and to leave this earth. And as he prays to God, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. It almost sounds like a tongue twister. If you read that too fast, you can miss it. But just those small words, of and in, two letters each, make a big difference in how we read it. He says, do not be of the world, but we have to be in the world. So how do we distinguish the difference between being surrounded by culture and being in the world, but not being the same, not of the world? We can't isolate ourselves so far from culture that we live in a monastery or a Christian camp our whole lives, though I encourage you to send your kids there for two to five days at a time. They've got to come back to you eventually and go back to live the lives that they've been called to live. We can't as Christians isolate ourselves so much from culture that we're not making an impact Jesus called his disciples, Jesus himself, to go, to make disciples, to get out of our comfort zone. It also starts with a mindset, a commitment to a view of the world as as it was intended to be designed by God and to have obedience to the one God who created it. And I want to really quickly read four verses, and I want you to notice these present tense verbs in this, that this is a battle that's never finished. Just like mowing your grass, doing your dishes, we don't always like doing them. You have to do them on repeat over and over and over again. Romans 8, 5 through 7 says, For those according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Philippians 3, 18 through 20 says, For many walk and who I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, 
where we eagerly wait for our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 2, similar, says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. In Mark 12, 30, which is similar to the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, when Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. Mark's version says that we should love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. If you remember that worldview slide, that graphic on the right is the center of that. That when we have our mind and our soul and our will and our attitude and our behavior and our actions and all these things combined, and we give God all of it, just like we talked about when we did all for one and pray for one, when you give God all of yourself, that's what he commands. When I decided to go back to Lincoln Christian two years ago, I felt like I was giving God all of my heart and all of my soul, but I was not giving God all of my mind. I was not giving God all of my strength. There's still part of me that I was not fully giving to God. Even serving in ministry, I was not fully putting my mind and strengthening my mind for those conversations. So that's how we can be Christians in the world, but not of the world. Setting our minds on the things that are eternal and not temporary. The third question I want to share today that I believe Christians need to be asking is what are the practical steps the church and Christians can take to prepare for battle? How can the church help prepare Christians for this battle? The first thing I want to share is two terms that I think all Christians need to know. First term is the term the nuns. When you hear that, you may hear like a monastery or Sister Mary Catherine, you may hear a nun, but that's not the nun that I'm referring to. I'm referring to Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And there's been this rise, especially in the last 30 years, of people who say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I have no affiliation to a church, but I have this spiritual desire in me. And we especially see that in pantheism and those type of ideas of someone who feels like they can connect to a spiritual power without Christ, without God, and without any allegiance to a church or religion. But these nuns continue to grow. And just 30 years ago, only 8% of people on most surveys said that they considered themselves a nun. But it's becoming one of the fastest growing people groups that unbelievers that we as Christians can reach. Someone who doesn't have a worldview that is so deeply rooted in naturalism and humanism and pantheism that we talked about, but is ripe for harvest, ready for us to share the gospel with them. Recent statistics is even higher than it was nine years ago that says 22%. Most now are saying somewhere between 26 to 30%, depending on the surveys. Almost one in four people are ready to say, I don't have any connection to religion, but a lot of them still say that they are spiritual. So these next graphics show some of the questions that we have when it comes to Christians. And specifically, this next graphic is going to show when they surveyed teenagers, and they were asking experience versus a biblical worldview and what the difference was. They asked these questions. One, do you believe Bible stories are true? And 95% said, yes, I believe the stories in the Bible are true. The next question was, do you believe the Bible persons historically are real and they existed? And again, a very high percentage said, yes, I believe that they really existed. Do you believe the Bible gives a fun and positive message? Again, over almost 90% said, yes, very high numbers. But when they said, are you living your life with all four of those things, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, committed to Christ and sharing the gospel with others and unbelievers, living your life as a biblical worldview, the numbers drastically drop off to 
And I think that shows some of the number of why we lose some of our teenagers when they graduate and go to college, when they've never been challenged in their faiths, when they've never met someone with a worldview so sharply different from theirs and don't know how to answer those tough questions. Doubts arise, and slowly those doubts become disbelief in their heart, and they take a break from their faith, some permanently, thankfully some just temporarily. The second word I want to share this morning is integrated disciple. Read this term several times, and there's some great books and Bible studies on this. But the idea or the premise is, again, those four things. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you committed not just to your faith, but to living your faith on a daily basis and making a difference in the church? And this group of people who are all in and totally committed to Jesus, that they're living their lives committed and being obedient to Him and seeking opportunities to share that truth with others. Not just a church, but out where they work, live, and in their community. So how do we change this statistic and deepen those roots and strengthen the foundation of our faith? I want to share a few strategies that I believe can make this possible. The first thing is we need to let people know that the church is a safe place to have doubts and ask questions. When Christians were asked why they left their faith, 66%, again, almost 7 out of 10 people, said they deconverted because when they shared their doubts in church, they were only given trite and unhelpful answers. But if we don't allow the church to be a safe place for questions and doubts, people are going to seek that help elsewhere. Especially our younger generation that is so driven by technology as they seek information, they're going to say, hey Alexa, hey YouTube, hey Siri, hey Google. And even saying it, my phone's saying, yes, what do you want? Our kids are ready to find that truth, and if we as parents, we as the church, we as Christians are not going to give them those answers, they're going to seek those answers elsewhere. And out in the world and in those technologies and in secular ideas, they're going to give them a drastically different answer than a biblical worldview or a worldview focused on Christ. So two practical ways I think the church can be a safe place for our questions are this. The first is hosting a night of reason. Luke Martin's done a great job with our youth doing this very thing. Once a month on Wednesday nights, he does what he calls or brands a night of reason. It allows our students to learn some of the apologetic questions, but also how to interact with people that believe differently than we do. One time he even pretended to be an atheist and had a visitor come in so that we can say, the first time you meet someone that doesn't believe in God, let's practice and do that safely within the church walls so that you can, the first time it happens outside, be prepared for that interaction. When you meet someone that's struggling with emotional doubt because they've lost someone to cancer, they feel like God didn't answer their prayers, or when they see the evil in the world that we live in and this problem of evil of school shootings and others, how could a good God allow this to happen? We've talked about that in a safe place in church, so they're ready to answer that in a way they can be confident in their faith. But the first time they have that interaction is when they're 18 or 19 years old in a freshman philosophy class with an atheist professor that's going to shatter their faith when a professor that has rehearsed 20 and 30 years how to destroy someone else's faith. It's not going to be a battle that they can easily win. The illustration I wanted to give to parents is someone who sees my kids who love sports, and many of you, your kids are involved in sports through a season and many of them year-round. And as parents and grandparents, we our schedule many times rotates around practices and games and traveling sports. The illustration I give, especially imagine during COVID, is imagine a basketball player who has never practiced against competition. Imagine in 2020 that he's shooting 92% from the free throw line, shooting 45% from three. His statistics look amazing. He sends his video off to college, and they think, we are getting a superstar with this kind of statistics. 
But then they haven't had any games for a year because they couldn't schedule any games. In practice, they had to be six feet apart in social distance. He's never been guarded when he shot the ball. So in reality, he is not a 90% and 45% shooter from the free throw line or three. Now I want you to relate that to our Christianity. If the only place our kids practice their faith is in church on Sunday and Wednesday and in the safety of our home, and then they go out against competition and schedule a game, and they've never been guarded, they've never been asked questions, their statistics are going to be a lot different than they were in practice with six feet of safety and no one guarding them. And as Christians, we need to not only practice for the game, like Alan Iverson said years ago, are we talking about practice? We need to schedule those games, and as Christians, need to be prepared. Practice is important, but practice gets us ready for the game. And for us, if we're going to have a win as Christians and win an unbeliever, win someone to faith, we've got to schedule those games. Don't have a life that is so busy with sports, so busy with our career, so busy with tasks that we don't take time to share our faith with people outside the safeties of these walls of this church. The second thing that we can do to make our church a safe place for others is to use curriculum like Room for Doubt. Room for Doubt is an app or a website or curriculum that helps people learn to ask the right questions. Studies have shown that many young students have doubts, but they can't find a place to offer them. And so Room for Doubt gives people a place to share those doubts where wise professors and other Christian authors write response to some of those questions. And so I would encourage you to look into that. Some churches use that curriculum with their small groups to go through those together, and I hope in the future Gateway Christian will do that as well. Another way that we can have church as a safe place and things that God is calling us to do as Christians to attack these statistics, I believe, is to sharpen our minds or sharpen your mind. We need to be looking for those deep answers that strengthen the foundation of our faith and do more than just read our Bible. Our Bible continues to be something that we should be reading on a regular basis. But I believe as Christians, there's things that the Bible was written 2,000 years ago to the churches of that time that don't always address every issue that we're battling in a secular culture today. And we need to, whether it's attend a Bible class, a seminar, a Christian leadership conference, we need to be looking for authors and ways to tackle some of the current issues so that we can be ready for those conversations. Three books that I highly recommend if you're looking for a book to sharpen your mind is Tactics by Greg Kokel, one of the best that I read in college, and he teaches us the right questions to ask to the right people. And so if you're praying for a one, he leads you to know the right question to ask for someone who's struggling with certain doubts or with certain worldviews. Another book, uh, Confident Faith, Mark Middleberg, who traveled here from Colorado Christian a year ago, writes a great book on, again, how we can be confident in our faith. And I already mentioned The Rise of the Nuns by White, how he talks about how this rising people group that we can witness to, the right questions that we can ask, but also ways as the church that we can be reaching those people that are spiritual but not religious. And so we need to be supplementing other sources than the Bible, sharpening our minds, sharpening our mindsets. But the last question I want to share today is I want to share what are some of the common barriers or hurdles that prevent faith in unbelievers? And quickly, I want to provide four strategies that we can use to eliminate those barriers, to eliminate those hurdles and prevent others from placing their faith in Christianity. The beeping's telling me my time's almost over. So I want to share real quick, we need to be inquisitive and ask questions. The first thing we can do is be asking those questions. Like an investigator trying to uncover a motive for a crime, we need to figure out the hurdle to faith 
that is preventing someone from making God a possibility in their lives? And ask, is it intellectual doubt that they just never thought about what they believe? Is it emotional doubt? Is it a bad experience with the church where they said, I don't want to be a part of a church? But we need to know what to overcome. We need to ask the right questions. What we learned just a few weeks ago in our James series in James chapter 2 is we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And when you do speak, be prepared to ask the right question. When you ask questions, it takes the burden of proof off you as the Christian and puts it back on the unbeliever. The same way we know the hope that we have, ask them what hope do you have in your belief system? And I bet most people have never thought that question or been challenged before. That instead of asking where their hope is or thinking about their eternal destiny or how their life has meaning and purpose, they just clutter their life so much with material things that they don't take the time to ask that question. But when we are quick to listen and slow to speak, believe God will allow us with our hearts and as we pray to him for the right time to speak and the right question to ask, make a difference, hopefully, to the person we're trying to reach. The second thing that we can do to eliminate those barriers is to be prepared. We talked about this earlier with 1 Peter 3.15. Know your hope and rehearse your questions. Now, your homework this week, I challenge you. Know your hope. Know why your faith is important to you. Know why you place your hope in Jesus. And if you've never put that in a journal or written it down on paper or marked your favorite Bible verse to say, this is the hope that I have in Jesus, do that this week. So when you have that interaction with an unbeliever, you're prepared and ready. And if someone's going to deny Jesus, make sure they deny the real Jesus. Often our peers are accepting these secular ideas and saying, I'm an atheist or saying, I'm agnostic, or I just want to ignore the reality and the truth we live in because of this, or because I see Jesus as judgmental, or I see Jesus not as accepting of other ideas, or I see Jesus as too narrow-minded. But that's not my Jesus. It may be the Jesus that the world paints, it may be the Jesus that secularism paints, but that is not my Jesus. My Jesus is loving, he's forgiving, he gives grace, and though he wants us to be perfect like his Father is perfect, there's a lot of grace for a Christian here on earth. And if someone's going to deny Jesus, make sure they're denying the right Jesus, not the other Jesus that the world paints. And while some others need reasons or evidence, we just need to be ready to encourage someone to commit to that Jesus and remove that hurdle or that barrier to allow them to take that first step. I want to read quickly two verses up here on this screen, and I didn't print them out of my notes. I'm going to read them from the slide. But 2 Timothy 2.26 says, Hopefully they will come to their senses and escape this trap from the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But Romans 12 tells us, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The third thing that we need to do to remove those barriers is be personal. Show someone you care, not that you want to win an argument. In Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, that I just shared a minute ago, he asks this really good question towards the end of the book, but he challenges people to leave a rock in someone's shoe. If you've been walking down the beach or walking down the road and you have sandals or something that allows a rock to get in your shoe, it bothers you enough many times you have to stop in your tracks, take your shoe off, shake the rock out before you can continue on your walk. And he says, as a Christian, this is the image that I want you to try to leave when you're talking to an unbeliever. You want to leave a rock in their shoe that's going to pester them enough as you walk away and leave the conversation that they can't just forget about it. They can't just simply disregard it, but it destabilizes their worldview enough and bothers them enough that they have to think through, is there truth to what they're saying? Maybe it's a good apologetic argument. 
Maybe it's just the right question. Maybe it's something else. But figure out what that hurdle is and read good books like Tactics. You can figure out the right questions to ask the person you're trying to reach. The last thing I want to share this morning of how we remove those hurdles and those barriers is we need to be patient. We know that change takes time in people, and rarely today are people's minds changed after one conversation. We need to be persistent and be caring. And as I close today, the last verse I'll share is 2 Peter 3.9. God is not slow in keeping His promises, especially if we are praying for God to lead us to be able to witness to someone else and ask the right question. I believe the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is going to lead us to knowing what to say and that He will speak through us and we put our mind on those higher purposes. And as we close today, I hope you can see how a Christian worldview and a theistic mindset on God brings meaning and purpose to life, where secular worldviews and an atheistic mindset or a mindset that has no religious affiliation ultimately leads to a meaningless end. And maybe just sharpening our game is exactly what we needed as Christians. And at camp this summer, I want to partner with your, with your kids, with your grandkids. I want to partner with our other leaders to continue to help to write a strategy to train our kids in such a deep foundation that when they have those tough conversations, when they leave the nest, they are not easily shaken in their faith. And during our invitation time, I want you to be thinking of these two questions. One, those four parts of our lives that God demands out of us, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Is there one of those parts of your life that you've never given fully to God? Maybe God has a part of you, but not all of you. And what is he calling you to do to give even more of yourself to him? Because he demands all, not part. The other question I want you to ask is, are you an integrated disciple? Are you integrated in this church to where you are not just a believer, but you're actively living your faith with a biblical worldview each and every day? Looking for opportunities to share the gospel with others and intentionally scheduling that game with an unbeliever that you're trying to witness to. I want to be a part of that solution and continue to work with you. And I, I thank you for the opportunity of sharing today. If you have a decision to make, whether it's a first-time decision to be baptized, to place your membership in this church, or even just to ask for prayer because you're struggling with something, I'll be down front during the service. I also know some of our staff, Aubrey and Luke, and some of our elders are here this morning too. But if you feel comfortable making a decision as we sing this last song, come forward. And before we do, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share some of the things you've placed on my mind over the last two and a half years. And Lord, many times we just need to prepare for battle. Lord, there's a spiritual battle out there that's real. Whether someone wants to believe in God or believe in these spiritual struggles, Lord, we know as a Christian that they are real. And there's things that we can't see with our eyes or that science can't test that we need to be prepared for. Lord, I pray for our faith that we can continue to sharpen our mindset and to, Lord, give you all of us so that we can be ready for those opportunities. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that's never given their life to you or they need prayer or they just need encouragement because of the struggles that this life brings, I pray they feel comfortable to know this church is a safe place to have those doubts and a safe place to ask for help knowing that no one in this room is perfect and we don't claim to be. But, Lord, we help each other walk through life on a daily basis. Lord, thank you so much for this church, for the ministry it provides, and thank you for the opportunity to share through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.